Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Alt Reports Radio, where I'm talking with founders, uh, investors, CEOs of alternative investment uh, platforms, funds, and strategies. And today I'm on here with Andre Washington of Binge Builder, who is referred to me by uh, Will Stringer, who hopefully you would have heard that episode uh, by the time we get to uh, Andre's. Super happy to have you here. And I took a, a quick look at your uh, site, but I got a bunch of questions. So I'm happy to have you on here. Uh, Andre, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So the first thing I want to do is maybe uh, if you could tell me a little bit about um, how you came to build, um, be building Binge Builder. Where did that, uh, where did the idea come from and what's what, what are you working on achieving over there? Sure. That's a great question. Uh, so I actually have a bunch of different backgrounds, uh, but the two that inspired this concept was I spent a while out on the road as a kind of working stand-up comedian after I got out of the military. Oh, wow. I kind of traveled around the circuit in New York and in the Midwest doing comedy. And, you know, one thing that I observed is that for a lot of the comedians that we would regard as famous, uh, the vast majority of them that were out on the circuit had a patron, uh, myself included. I had an affluent stepmother that was helping float my comedy career when I was out there. And so that was the first kind of seed. It's like, wow, that's interesting that like the vast majority of people, you name a comedian and I'll name the patron that kind of supported their career uh, in the early stages before, you know, you think of like the Hannibal Burrises of the world. Uh, he came up under Donald Glover, which is funny because Donald Glover's younger. But, you know, it's it's very much a world where someone, for the most part, had to help you through. And so for me, it's like, OK, well, there must be a way that similar to much other forms of intellectual property. That's what brings my other background in, which is in law. There must be a way to nurture. Um, you know, you can buy a house and and flip it and clean it up and increase the property value of it. And so similarly, why can't we do this for early stage creators? We do this for yeah. early stage business intellectual property. And you see creators take Mr. Beast, for example, right now yeah. at this exact moment, raising money for his company at a $1.5 billion valuation, right? Like a mm. true unicorn entity. And I think what makes the opportunity around intellectual property so unique is that the value of it is evergreen. So while highly speculative, right? Hence being on an alternative investment site, but it, it, it also is evergreen, which is unique, right? It's different than some other forms of intellectual property where the revenue generation can not only happen at any point in time in the life cycle, life cycle of IP, but oftentimes uh, it's later in the life cycle for intellectual property where the value, look at Marvel, right? And think of how long Marvel was around before it just became a money printing machine. But for sure. decades, all throughout, I was in high school, no one cared about Marvel at all, right? Yeah. It was something totally. that kids that, you know, read and engaged with, but it didn't have the the revenue potential to it. It's part of the reason why Sony owns the rights to Spider-Man, right? Mm. Because Marvel was going bankrupt and they needed to sell it, right? And, and still to this day, Disney can't pry Spider-Man away from Sony, right? And so for me, it's that, that's the value of intellectual property is that, you know, yes, we're talking about late stage IP, but in our company focuses on early stage IP, but conceptually, that's the inspiration for the company. It's this, we want to nurture, grow, develop, invest, and take ownership stakes in early stage intellectual property represented in the form of creator income share agreements, which you're probably familiar with if you heard the episode with Will, um, where they work with 
individual people with an income share agreement. We work with creators. Um, we also do IP assignments where we'll purchase the intellectual property outright. We will invest often into the creator's company. A lot of the creators, the YouTube type creators that we've been focusing on primarily because they get to revenue generation quicker. Um, they tend to already have small formal companies for the most part already in place. So let's talk a little bit about uh, that thesis. And you said it pretty fast, but are you're a stand-up comedian lawyer? Is that what I? Is that what I? I yeah, that I was kind of the the two intersections uh, of of yeah my my background. Yeah, when I got out of the army, um, I think comedy was a great way for me to like understand and process and reconnect. Um, and so I I really enjoyed the experience of having to develop and then actually go deliver. And I think it it is. One of the things that um, in being a founder and having to pitch constantly, it can be tough to overcome oftentimes the stage fright of constantly having to put yourself out there and deal with the rejection. And so years on the tour doing comedy definitely helps steal your rejection muscle. Sure. And so was it um, was it litigation? Are, are you were you uh, orating in the courtrooms and to tie it all together? Not, oh, not super boring. No, it was interest. it was mostly military stuff. So uh, environmental impact boring, like, oh, appellate like appeals. No, I actually worked for Bonneville, which is um, one of the federal government's power companies. This is going to get so boring for people. Uh, but the, the federal <laughs> oh. government owns two private power companies, Bonneville Power Administration oh. and the Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, okay. And so the Tennessee Valley Authority manages the power from the Mississippi River and the um, Bonne, Bonne, uh, Bonneville manages the power from the uh, Columbia River power system. It's like a joint annex department between Canada and the United States. And so hmm. we handle a lot of the like regulatory concerns around power mitigation trading. There's a trading floor inside of Bonneville where they trade that power. It's another alternative asset if you wanted to go down there. Um, yeah, there's literally a trading floor on the top floor of, of wow. Bonneville where they trade power and electricity and, and tax credits uh, for the most wow. part, 24 seven. Wow. That's wild. Um, I didn't know any of that. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, talk to so you boring, boring, but also kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about this thesis. So you are, so you mentioned YouTube creators, so you're investing in creators. What, uh, tell me mm -hmm. a little bit about like, what kind of creators are you looking for? How much are you investing? What is their, what's the revenue stream that you're looking for from them? Like, let's just kind of get a box around what that looks like would be great. Yeah, so we started out pretty agnostic uh, two years ago when we founded the company. And what we wanted to do first was get a better idea and understanding of who would be interested, right? Because I think it's pretty presumptuous to assume that people want to take your money. Um, hmm. And so I think for us, we were relatively agnostic in the beginning. Let's see what comes in. A uh, little bit of film came in, a little bit of television came in, uh, YouTube projects came in. What we noticed with film and television is obviously that's a extremely networked space, and so even if you're just trying to move on from the pieces of IP, there has to be a level of development into them, even to shell them, sell them from like a shopping agreement. And so that, that takes a level of like, you can almost think of it as like follow on investment, right? Cause you have to spend some extra capital to develop that. And so we found that that's at least at this stage with us being very early stage, those aren't the ideal profile for investment. So where we found our sweet spot being, is in creators that are focused primarily on YouTube. I would say TikTok to some extent because they tend to be interchangeable, admittedly. Mm -hmm. um, but creators that are 
either actively in monetization or what we would call near monetization. And so near monetization is they're close to about 10,000 followers on YouTube. Usually monetization starts at 1,000 followers and a certain amount of viewing hours. But for the most part, people that are at about 10,000 followers tend to have the viewing hours metric completed. It's like 2,400 hours, something like that of viewing hours. Uh, might, might be more than that, so don't quote me on it. Okay. But it's, a, it's an intersection of viewing hours times. You have to have a minimum of subscribers to your channel for the, for the partnership yeah. program. And so for us, we tend to focus on creators that are right around the 10,000 in the YouTube space and right around 100,000 in the TikTok space, only because it's a little bit easier to get a following on TikTok. Um, And so that tends to be our sweet spot. And what we also look for is comedy. Um, We look for satire. We look for uh, beauty and makeup. We haven't signed one of those creators yet, but we're actively searching for those aggressively. Uh, We look for household um, and the logic behind that is, again, these are pathways to monetization that are that are easier for us. We can then uh, align with the creators through contracts. We do fashion creators as well. That's another one. Things that lend themselves well to shows, but then also have the ability to have easy tie-ins for sponsorships. So it's a little bit more of a unique thesis of kind of what we're hunting for. And you can sort of get get the feel for what we're looking for is we're looking for creators that have the ability to be what? We can think of them as like nano and niche influencers, right? So if you think of influencers as falling into vaguely four groups, so like nano influencers, people that are starting out, but people you trust, right? Like the mm-hmm. um, the uh, the Facebook dads group, right? When you're going somewhere trying to find out where's yeah. a good place to take your kid on the weekend as a dad, right? So yeah. the the nano influencer, right? Versus the niche influencer where we talked about that beauty and makeup, uh, household goods, uh, parenting, right? Niche influencers. And then we also talk about brand influencers, which tend to be a little bit more of like a famous type person, admittedly. Um, and usually that's in your like 500,000, irrespective of the platform type of follower count, right? Like someone that really moves the needle and they can sell a lot from a coupon code and then your celebrity being kind of your last tier. So our focus point is on nano and niche influencers when we say early stage, because we feel like they're monetized to the point of where there's revenue available in real time. Because again, they've had some level of traction and growth and maybe they just don't have the bandwidth yet to open up for the sponsorship opportunities. They don't have the ability to spread out to do a podcast from a production support capability so we can actively deploy capital in small amounts we're talking two thousand to twenty five thousand dollars have not made a twenty five thousand dollar investment average check size at this point it's about two thousand to five thousand for most creators hmm. so, so so you're saying creators i'm hearing a lot more influencers and also it seems like like really focused around like performance art uh is that on like acting oh, we, is, or just being on video period um yeah it's a little bit of so we have a fashion brand that we have signed called ecos human um we the larger in largest influencers when you get to when we talk about comedy would be like bob and the kid right so bob and the kid do comedy satire reaction videos is how they started and uh-huh. what what i found to be unique is it and i know this is going to sound a little bit goofy but it doesn't really matter how you start what matters is like how you grew it Right. And so the example I will always give is uh, when my daughter was a year old, she used to watch this guy on TV. His name was Blippy. And if you don't have kids, you probably have no clue who Blippy is. If you have kids, you already know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. And Blippy had no, we had, you know, a couple thousand views, I think, a couple years ago when she first started out watching him. But Blippy constantly invested 
all the money that came from the revenue back into content, traveling, more growth, more activity, better production value, like constant reinvestment of every dollar that came back into the point of now Moonbug comes along and acquires it, right? And then then Moonbug itself is able to actually create a value where then it comes along and gets acquired itself by Blackstone, right? Yeah. And so there are private equity firms that are deeply in this game. Moonbug also owes Cocoa Melon. So again, if you have no kids, you have no clue what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but if you scroll to your number 10 rank on Netflix, every single time nine or 10 is Cocoa Melon, right? Because if you have children, it's just something that pacifies them. So it's content and it's content that just began natively on YouTube, right? Relatively high production value. So a little bit higher production value than what we're focusing on in creators, right? It's an animated show series, but we're, we're focused more on live action, right? For the most part, and low production costs, web camera, cell phone, like low end, because most of the investments we're making in creators is because they want to activate. We want to sell merch. So we want to get the, yeah. si the site set up. We want to get a domain going. We want to get aligned with a company that can help us get some clothes on high end that are organic or that are 100% recycled materials. And so for us, it's really serving that. Um, uh, we've been called before a almost like talent management for early stage creators um, hmm. it's just that instead of the way that we memorialize our relationship instead is through an investment Not, you could call us an accelerator right i think oftentimes when i'm speaking with investors that tends to be the the network i call it a support network but oftentimes it, it does uh, present itself often like an accelerator. I, I would say it's not as formal as an accelerator because normally accelerators have this very tight curriculum of you come in, you execute X, and then you come out on the back end. Where for us, we, at this point, at this early stage, we're very ad hoc. So there's a lot of education that is involved in what we do. Um, and the vast majority of that education is related around the business options. It's helping creators understand how to formalize the business from a structural standpoint, how to leverage the tech stack. I think that's the biggest value I see us providing outside of capital is the vast majority of creators, even though they make their money on the internet, they're not super tech savvy. So it's really helping them see like, hey, this is a super way you can automate your process. You can use HubSpot to do this. You can use MailChimp to do this. And like mm -hmm. these things that you're doing manually that are taking you all these time for, it's actually really simple to stitch this stuff together and we can help you with kind of the like the entry point of just getting it put together and then you manage it on your own and so okay. i think for us that's that's the true value that we provide is increased so it's not, operational bandwidth it's not just two thousand or five thousand dollars then because that doesn't seem like a lot like what why not a credit card at that point um you know if that if that's all it is but you're saying it's much more than that it sounds like you've got a whole program that uh that they go through is that right we do provide a lot of support in addition to the capital. I will say for a lot of the creators, though, and, and I think that's the, the feedback that I hear often from investors that are interested in possibly investing in the company is it doesn't seem like the amounts of money are large. And then the thing I always remind them is that, like, I take two and five thousand dollar checks <laughs> for my company right now. Right. Like the half the people on my cap table cut a five thousand dollar check or larger. And so um, when we're talking about early stage creators, $5,000 is a lot of money to activate towards your vision. I think it's often not so much the capital. Yeah, you're right. You could get a credit card and get a $5,000 line of credit. But I think more of what it provides, and, and you, you do hit to this when you talk about the back end support, but it's also the, uh, the belief, right? We talked earlier about the patron. And it's one thing for you to get a credit card and charge a bunch of debt to it and have your parents or whoever yelling at you, your spouse, right? Versus... Yeah an outside organization reaches out to you or you reach out to them, you get a mini win as a creator, you're validated in terms of your belief and your support. Um, and it's that structure. I think it's that team. It's that early stage validation that 
you already have a little bit of it, right? Because you're building a following. Uh, yeah. But I also think it's this idea that someone believes in you and they're formalizing the relationship. I think that when I talk to creators about why did they ultimately agree to come into the portfolio, that tends to be the reason, right? It's that, hey, you believed in us, right? Again, much almost like an early stage talent agent, right? It's that like, yeah. you identified me early, you see the talent before everyone else did, and you're willing to support me in my vision. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about how you're identifying them. Are you just trolling um, YouTube or TikTok or whatever to find accounts that seem like they match? Yeah, so we do actually have production people that do search for creators um, kind of based off profile. I think what we tend to do to be able to identify creators as we work through network effects, right? As we bring creators into the portfolio, because mm -hmm. the nice thing about the creators in the portfolio is it's a really long incubation period, or at least it has been to this point to get people comfortable with the contracts, the relationship, yeah. the paperwork. And again, we're not talking about for large amounts of money. And so we, as we begin to scale, we need it to be a much simpler process. And yeah. so because of that, we found that when we work from one creator and then from them through their network into the introduction of the next creator, that's a much easier way to scale um, than when creators come inbound through the pipeline and we assess them in reaction. That's that's definitely the vision of how we get there ultimately, right? Through marketing growth, driving inbound leads, working and processing through it, most likely running some sort of algorithmic equation based off our success rates, profile following um diversity of the intellectual property concept, right? So is it just this or does it have the ability to be other things, right? What we look for is it's a YouTube, but it could also be a podcast, right? Or it's a podcast, but it could also be on YouTube, similar to how you and I had kind of spoke earlier. So we look for yeah. people that are open to diversity projects that have multiple pathways to revenue and creators that actually want to build a company, right? Not every creator wants to build a company. And so sure. it's really trying to understand like, what is your goal and does your goal align with like ultimately what we're trying to do? We don't want to put a bunch of pressure on you if you just have a side hustle and like it's working out for you. But if you have a vision, what we tend to hunt for is teams because um, individual creators are, it's not that they're hard to work with in my opinion, it's just that to your what you called out earlier, there's less of a need for all this formalization because it's just yeah. them. Right. But when it's more than one creator, we've sort of been able to show them that, like, hey, y'all need to formalize this anyways. Right. Because you have money coming in. You got multiple people. And at some point, someone's going to want more or someone's going to want to leave. And you're not going to have any formal structure around how you're doing this. And it tends to be the aha moment for them. So we found that at least to this point, unless we're purchasing the intellectual property outright, what tends to make the most sense is hunting for teams. Hmm. Okay. Right. So yeah, we'll you hear that a lot duo. in the VC funding space. I have friends who fund, yeah. you know, tech startups and they much prefer, you know, it seems like teams most of the time. Yeah, so, that's fair. Um, so two to five thousand dollars, what do they what what's the return for you? What are you targeting for? What 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 is the like what are your expectations? Uh, obviously you don't expect all of them to make it, many of them just you know, fizzle out or whatever. So right. what is that? What's the return look like? Like if you project out a little bit, what's the goal? Yeah, sure. So I'll, um, just to clarify, it's 2000 to 25,000. Oh, okay. But to your point, the average check size to this point has been two to 5,000. Now, okay. in terms of the, the goal, the way we look at it is very similar to venture, right? If you have um, a $10 million venture fund, you're taking between 
five and 50 swings. Maybe if your check sizes are real small, you can get about 75 swings. But if you're doing follow on investments, it's closer to that five to 50 range. So okay. with that same $10 million, we can take a thousand swings, right? Because we're taking significantly cheaper swings, but grabbing the yeah. same amount of equity. And we're for the most part, grabbing equity that's non-dilutive, right? And so like, you know, in the traditional venture capital investment, that company is going to continue to need follow on investment. But as you've sort of already called out, we're investing in things that don't often need these large subsequent rounds of like series A and series B and series C. So there may only yeah. be one to two other rounds, if ever, rounds of follow on. In some cases, we're taking ownership stakes in LLCs. We're not only just taking uh, stock equity stakes in companies. We're, we're most often taking an ownership stake in an LLC. And and with the right to be able to convert it later. So we're doing safe tied to LLCs. We have a law firm that we've been uh, working with since day one. Um, that's kind of kind of helped us map out how to like manage the intellectual property ownership structure from this from a cap table standpoint, hmm. and then roll it all up into a fund that then people can invest into the singular fund. Otherwise, you're managing a ton of individual administrative LLCs all tied to each one of these investments. So by rolling them all up into one large fund, and then the fund itself owning the individual structure, and then people taking net asset value ownership stakes into the fund, that's sort of the way that we've sort of broken it up. The tech cap table is tokenized so that you can either onboard as a crypto investor or you can do paper trail. Yeah. So it's partial cap table. We've worked with a vendor that offers partial cap table tokenization. So for the fund, so it allows people to come into the fund directly uh, using USDC to join, or they can do a traditional accredited investor and join the fund. Now, in hmm. terms of what we look for, it's pretty similar to your traditional venture fund. We're looking for two and a half to three and a half X in terms of uh, return on investment. And then for us, you know, when we when we think of what does success look like, right? So you're taking a thousand swings. How many of these need to hit? So earlier we talked about those tiers of celebrity, brand influence, niche influencer, and nano influencer. So for us, the goal is in a thousand swings, one celebrity, right? 5% brand influencers brand influencers and then we yeah. genuinely feel like of a thousand swings easily 75 percent of them should be able to get to nano and niche now yeah 25 percent of that is going to be a burn um maybe a little bit higher but because we're looking when we say nano and niche we're talking a thousand dollars of actual return on investment right so if we have a youtube creator that's now got their channel to the point of where they're generating very small we're talking a thousand dollars a month here and we've only made a $2,500 initial investment and we have a 5% stake into their $1,000 a month that they're bringing in after they're, they're, they've covered for their costs. It's, it's almost like small business loans, right? So it's not yeah. like very high risk factors that we're taking in terms yeah. of, yes, we're taking lots of swings. And to your point, only one to two to three of them will hit in that unicorn level. But the yeah. difference is, is when we hit a unicorn, it's an evergreen piece of intellectual property, right? It's this YouTube channel that has this indefinite growth power to it. Now, it's not that it's always going to go up and go up over time, but it's that once it hits that critical nexus point of it's making a hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, that's what we consider a unicorn tier for us. So again, okay. very small, right? Very small returns yeah. on investments because we're not making large investments on the front end. Hmm. How common, how often, I guess it's, that's a real hard thing to answer, but I just wonder to grow from, you know, a thousand, I've had YouTube channels with, you know, a thousand or 2000 uh, subscribers before that's, that's not too much, but like there was no, you know, how often are you, do you think you're going to see them like have any me? Okay. few questions. Cause you've said a lot and I'm trying to process it all. So mm -hmm. um, let, let me back up a little bit. So first off, sure. 
it sounds like if if I'm looking for if I'm taking two to twenty five thousand uh, from you, do I already have an LLC? Are you helping them set up the whole structure right yes, from the? Yes, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. Often, so often you do the whole thing, point. right? Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes, again, I'll be honest, like a lot of these creators already have this, right? Like the, when oh, they're they working with duos, that's why we started hunting for teams, right? Yeah. Because when we started hunting for teams, what we began to realize is they tend to have an LLC in place. It might be a little murky. So maybe we yeah. need to come in and help them clean it up a little bit. Or they were yeah. using someone's LLC for something else, but they at least yeah. have the process in they place. They had something. To do, so we'll help them move it over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, are there a lot of YouTubers and TikTokers making 100,000 or more? YouTubers, yes. TikTokers, the yeah. revenue stream is a little bit more diluted. YouTubers, yes. Okay. And so for us, when, when, and, and when we talk about revenue growth, like that's just passive income that you make from making your YouTube videos and have to grow. Yeah, that's yeah. not even the opportunity to go out and get you signed to Jelly Smack or get you logged on to Memento NFT or get you working with direct distributors in terms of the Walmart creator program. So that's hmm. just like the money you're making from YouTube. That's not even yeah. the opportunities that you now have opened up from a sponsorship standpoint. Um, Bob and Leonardo or Bob and the kid uh, are a great example because we started working with them in the summer of 2021 and you know they do reaction videos to music videos right so they watch a music video they do reaction vids to like music videos on youtube really popular kids very yeah. funny i'm gonna um, have to look and up. yeah and they've had like atlantic records come to them and say like hey what we'd actually love to have you do is help us pop emerging artists right and so instead of you watching like a michael jackson video which we also love because yeah. it's still great we would prefer that like these artists that people haven't necessarily heard of, we can maybe kind of feed them to y'all and y'all maybe do the music videos and then we can find out some compensation structure for you guys on the back end. Right. And so that's, that's what we're seeing as the opportunities we're seeing that like as companies shy away from wanting to align with larger brands from a cost standpoint, mm -hmm. um, they look for how can I get, basically that almost that direct to consumer marketing through the influencer. Right. And I, I mean, Walmart's a perfect example of this. Like they literally have created a creator program except they built our company effectively inside where they find the creators themselves. They nurture them. They help you understand Walmart's different product offerings. And so how you can make it part of your videos um, as an influencer and then how the compensation structure works for that for you. And so I think that organizations at the highest tier understand, I think it's part of the reason why Walmart tried to buy TikTok. Right, is they immediately saw the opportunity that was there from a wow, we can basically use this to move our stuff. Right. Yeah. Like this is a very compelling way for people to buy. People tend to search for TikTok. This it, I, I would say a millennial generation, it's an Amazon, it's a Google search, a Gen Z situation, it's a TikTok video to be able to understand like iron shirt, right? And like what's the way to do it? Like what's the app like? What's the, what is the best play? Oh, well, shirts that don't need to be ironed. Perfect. Right. Like buy now. Yeah. Right. And so that conversion, you get that influencer ad, um, what was going viral during black Friday was a lot of the influencers. I think it was target influencer, maybe Sephora, um, influencer who had a coupon code and she had been like popular since May. Like some people had used it and it was like 25% off. But what they realized was this lady's coupon code stacked on top of like all the black Friday deals. And so this woman literally made like millions of dollars for Black Friday because <laughs> everybody's using her coupon code to like buy makeup or whatever it was, right? And so yeah. I think that like where influencers are showing their value from mm -hmm. a help move consumer product standpoint is that yeah. they have brand loyalty, right? Where 
maybe for our, our generation, it's more of a celebrity-driven purchase process. It's more of a reality-based influencer-driven purchase process, I would say, yeah. for the under 35 crowd. Interesting. So you mentioned 5%. Is that uh, what your terms look like uh, with, with uh, folks most of the time? Yeah, we, we hunt. We're not locked in. It really just kind of depends on what you have. Where are you in the growth stage cycle? Um, what is the opportunity before? If it's an IP assignment, it tends to be 50%, right? Because we kind of want the controlling stake if we're going to buy some intellectual property from someone. Mm -hmm. um, so it really just depends on what they're doing. If it's a creator income share agreement, it might only be 1%, right? It really just depends on like, what's the size of revenue that we're getting a share of. And that'll sort of dictate the investment and return um, that so we're you, making. You and so, not, yeah, we have, a, yeah. Yeah. IP assignments, creator income share agreements, equity stake investments. Okay. And so what do you feel like is your edge in this? Uh, you know, there's a lot of folks like you even mentioned Walmart going out there and looking for these folks. Why are you? Well, I would say that like what makes us unique, what I tend to talk to creators about in particular when they're asking me that question versus I, I can ask from the investor side and from a creator side. And I would yeah. say the reason why creators tend to work with us is for one, like again, much like talent management, like we're there pretty early. And so like it's the question tends to be what do you, what do you, what are you going to get out of it? Right. They tend to understand the value of what we're providing and what we're here for, yeah. but they're really concerned of like, what are you guys going to get out of it? Why are you coming in so early? And so it's often trying to educate and explain to them that, Hey, we have a hypothesis and we basically believe that creator IP is as value as business IP. We're effectively the first creator IP venture fund. If you want to think about it like that. And okay. so what we're focused on is trying to get access to your equity because we believe it's going to be valuable and try to be pretty transparent. And then in terms of like, you know, for an investor, what's the opportunity here? You know, I would say that like, it's already happening, right? I would say that like the way IP is developed now at the highest stages is studios in Los Angeles, go to banks in New York, they get loans to make giant pieces of intellectual property that then are traded as securities if they become valuable, right? And so I would say that like sure. that, it's already something we see. And what we're trying to do is, and, and again, I gave the example earlier of Mr. Beast. There's a lot of companies um, at the edge of this space. There's Creator DAO, there's Story DAO. So they're, they tend to take the form of DAOs um, at this moment. But people are there. DAO, people are, are you people saying are, like a... Decentralized, you're talking about a crypto, like a DAO? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. yes. Yeah, so the companies like us that yeah. exist at this moment, they don't tend to be a, have our same paperwork structure. They tend to just have okay. a DAO structure. Uh, Creator, Creator DAO is almost a one-for-one -one copy of what our company is. It's founded by a very influ uh, famous influencer on YouTube. And so very similar business concept. Um, they just work in more of a commission model in terms of how they get paid, um, but okay. still pretty, pretty similar concept. And what I would say, though, is, is that we're we see people diversifying across alternative asset classes. You see private asset investment in the software tech companies having blown up recently. And I just see this as a growth from that. We see people investing into farm shares. We see people investing into art at scale. Uh, through mm -hmm. different platforms. We see companies like Wills and Chisos, again, much like ours, right? Direct investments into people. And so I would say this is just the growth of that, where we're just here to support creators. And so what makes us unique is while there are some other people doing it, 
I would say I still don't think anyone is as early stage as we are yet. And so if we're okay. taking that traditional venture approach, why why do you think that you have a competitive edge? I would say that nobody's at this seed stage yet, right? Like even Creator, I would say it's more of like a Series A um, in terms of the types of creators, right? So if we're talking about that celebrity brand niche nano, they would primarily be focused on brand and celebrity influencers, right? People that already have the ability to monetize in the hundreds of thousands to millions right now. Okay. So um, what do you see as the risks to what you're doing? Oh, it's, it's extremely risky, right? I would say that like the the thing that makes it less risky than other alternative investments is there's there's actually an underlying piece of property, right? With the intellectual okay. property, like there's an actual ownership stake into two creators that are revenue generating, right? Versus some of the other uh, more alternative investment platforms. There, there isn't always like a underlying actual ownership of an asset, right? So I think yeah. that's one thing. I think that there's actual hard, tangible intellectual property. If the company fails, there's still a vault of intellectual property that can be sold, right? The, I often get asked, what do I see the exit being? And the exit is, the same exit that happens to most real publishing houses or intellectual property holding companies is they get purchased for their library, right? Yeah. And so like that's the 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 acquisition of the IP you've developed. Yeah, that tends to be the value. Um so I would say like that's one thing that mitigates a little bit against the risk. What makes it extremely risky is it's an alternative investment. Again, we we talked a lot about the idea that we're often investing into like very early stage creators. Um yeah. And while they have quick pathways to monetization, they also have high burnouts, right? And so like it, the, the thing we adjust for is less of a, what's the percentage chance that these people won't get to monetization versus what's the percentage chance that they burn out before they repay the X, right? Or yeah. that we don't see the whole multiple. We projected a five X for them, but in the end, we only saw three because they burnt out, right? And so for us, it's really trying to manage burnout in terms of the creators having a good idea of like, where they are, how are they feeling, really doing a good job on the front end of doing referrals. And so we make sure that we're working with creators that want to do this and are engaged in this and aren't just trying to make a quick buck. Um, so I would say that's that's how we are trying to underwrite, right, for lack of a better term, the investment. Um, yeah. But on the high end, what we're really looking at is quality of content, right? Because we feel like if you have good quality of content, then the quality of your content and how do you measure quality of content? We look at the consistency that you post and we look at the quality of the engagement on each one of your posts. Not just do you have likes, but do you have comments? Like we're actually digging for like, cause I mean, you could buy likes, you can buy views. Right. And so it's really hmm. trying to see like, is there engagement? Is there comments? Like, and, and sometimes you have to buy some likes and buy some views to kind of get that first uh, like initial algorithm pushing your stuff for it. So that's not, I'm not hating on that at all. What I'm just saying is that like what we're looking for is engagement, that people yeah. are engaged with your content because the value of early stage creators is their communities are highly activated, right? Where yeah. a later stage creator uh, doesn't always have as activated as a community as sometimes a YouTube follower with just a thousand subscribers who can activate and still sell a hundred thousand dollars worth of merch a year. Right. The burnout makes a lot of sense to me. And that's what in the back of my mind, that's what I was thinking is that, you know, it's a, it can be a grind uh, creating content all the time, whatever, whatever you're creating. And uh, yeah, I could definitely see that. So and almost none of our creators are full time, right? Because they're early stage. So most of our creators are to the point where they're full. They have another day job and they create mm. in addition to what they're doing. And I think that's part of the value we provide is we 
like uh, Jocelyn and Courtney, for example, are two relatively famous traveling comedians in the bandwidth we provide. As they show up, they record, we chop it, we edit it, we post it. And so for them, it's that it's less about the front end investment and it's more, they used all their investment to just cover the production cost of their show. So for them, it's mostly about like, hey, I'm on tour all day long, traveling all the time. I can come yeah. on once a week, record my pod, get it out and it's done. Cool. So uh, tell me then from an investor uh, standpoint, a few questions I have are sure. uh, minimum target return uh, lockup. Yeah. So we, we tend to focus primarily at this stage on um, people investing into either really depends on if you're investing in binge builder, the company itself, or you're coming directly into the fund. Uh, okay. Into the fund, we've been pretty open-minded with the check size. They usually, uh, for accredited investors, is usually about a minimum $10,000 check size. For institutional investors, we try to get them to commit a little bit more, ideally in the six figures. Um, we've only had uh, one institutional investor that's come in so far, not directly to the fund, but into the company um, in, in a, at a pretty decent check size and a five-figure check size. And then in terms of, yes, one other question. I'm sorry, I apologize. Um, I just uh, investment. So check size return, return, target, right? Target return, yeah. Yeah, target return. We we talked a little bit before. So like what we hope for is the net net return between two and a half, three and a half X is what we're okay. going for. Um, and then in terms of lockup period for the net asset value, if you're taking a, a tokenized stake, um, it's usually about 18 months that it has to be locked up for administratively. Otherwise, if it's just a paper stake, it's a year. Uh, yeah. to move on from your net asset value shares. And then timeline horizon for maturity on investment from the funds is usually about 36 months. That's much shorter than I would have thought, actually. I, I mean, that's thought... just on, that's, again, we we will see, right? But it's, <laughs> what are what are we targeting? Um, and yeah. so for us, yeah, it's about 36 months. But the, again, when we say return, the nice thing is, is that like a lot of the creators we're hunting for even though they're early stage, most of them, like Bob and Leonard, we talked about before, they're at monetization, right? Mm. And so they're already at a level of monetization. And so for us, it's really just trying to get an idea of how can we grow it, right? How can we yeah. provide more opportunities so that that $2,500, $3,500 a month in revenue can easily 10x and 15x over the, over the period of our relationship while working with them? Yeah, really cool stuff. How uh, should an investor find you if they want to learn more or if this sounds good? Sure. The best way to reach out to me, I'm available on LinkedIn. You can find me under my name, Andre Washington, A-N-D-R-A-E. Check out Binge Builder. You can uh, hit us up on the website. Hit us up on uh, Line. I'm on Telegram. I'm pretty much anywhere they can be. I'm happy to kind of slack over my my information later for, for people to, to to ping me, but the most place the easiest to find me is on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on, on Twitter, sasleysfund.eth um, is my is my Twitter handle. Um, but yeah, I'm you know I'm around. <laughs> like I, I'm I'm uh, Andre at Builder X is my email. Uh, okay, just my name A N D R A E. So pretty easy to reach out to me. Um, happy I'm here based in New York. Happy to grab coffees and chat with people about assets. It's something that I'm super passionate about. So you know, pretty pretty open book here. Okay. Well, right on. I appreciate you coming in here. Uh, this has been uh, educational. I had no idea what you were going to tell me about today. And I, <laughs> I learned a whole bunch of stuff. So it's fantastic.